Good afternoon, everyone. We are together again for the Henry and Lisa Manasheri Parsha Shir with Rabbi Akiva Zweig, Rosh Yeshiva at the Talmudic University of Florida, and the spiritual spearhead of the Emisphere program, which I'm sure you all have been hearing about. This week, the rabbi will be discussing Parshas Vayigash and Aser Batevas. The subtopics will be creating culture and a father and children tapestry. The month of Tevas is dedicated by Sylvia Levy and family in commemoration of the 10th Yorzeit of her beloved father Yitzhak ben Moshe. Yis, uh, Isaac Sterenthal, Zichrona Livracha, may his memory be a blessing, lived a full life uh, full of purpose and unrelenting optimism. Very responsible, firm, honest, and loyal. You could always count on his support and his word. Isaac's love of family and his quiet acts of kindness are transcendental. His family has been deeply inspired by his example and are forever transformed by his abundant blessings. Sounds like an astonishing person. Neshama Heaven Aliyah, Mazal Tov to the entire lady and choose their families on the bris. Mazal Tov of Ezra Yosef Levy, without further ado, Rabbi Akiva Swaig. Good afternoon, a good Arab Shabbos. I trust and hope that everyone is having a meaningful and not too difficult fast day. Um, I'm making sure that everyone is on mute, so please remember after, uh, for questions and comments, that you um, unmute and uh, hopefully will address according to the raised hands Etc. So as we look at Parshas Vayigash, there's so much in this storyline that is truly the longest storyline in the Torah, which is that of the 12 tribes, the emergence of the 12 tribes, and specifically Yosef, the sale of Yosef, and the happenings with the brothers, the eventuality of Yosef becoming viceroy in Egypt, and in this week's Parsha, Yosef revealing his identity to the brothers. So let's ask a few what I would consider to be pretty basic, what we would call in the Shiva Pashut Pshat questions. Question number one is that Yehuda makes a tremendous show, uh, a demonstration of pleading for the fate of Brother Binyamin, who was caught as a thief. He was caught red-handed with the goblet of Yosef, which was a very specific important goblet of Yosef Faisal of Egypt. And Yehuda is pleading on behalf of the release of the safety, you know, for the safety of Binyamin. And he makes a lot of an issue about the fact that Binyamin is young and that his father cannot live without him. Uh, if we come back without Binyamin, my father will die. And it's just, you know, too painful to imagine what's gonna happen with my father. And so my question is, if we're in the mindset of Yehuda, why does Yehuda think that that's an argument that would hold sway with the viceroy of Egypt whose goblet was just stolen? And if we take it at face value and we assume that Yehuda thinks that he has to deal with Yosef as though Binyamin is really guilty, which is definitely what it sounds like, why should Yehuda think in that moment before Yehuda knows that it's Yosef in front of him, that Yosef could give a flying leap about 
what happens when Yehuda goes home without Binyamin. Why, why is that something that Yehuda thinks that Yosef would pay attention to or care about? So that's question number one. Question number two, as is always the question in these parashios, is what is it that Yosef is finally ready now to reveal himself, whereas before he was not ready. He was playing all of these games with his brothers, and we discussed that part last week. But this week, in addition to the fact that we have to understand why Yosef finally does say, hey, it's me, Yosef, your brother that you sold me down to Egypt. The first words out of Yosef's mouth, other than to say, I am Yosef, I, I want to quote to you the verse. It's chapter 45, sentence 3. Yosef says to his brothers, I am Yosef. Is my father yet alive? It's one of the more astonishing questions in the Torah because they've been talking about the father the whole time. Every time the brothers come down, they talk about the father, the father, the father. And now Yehuda just got finished saying, hey, I got to go back up to my father and I can't go up without Binyamin because if I go up without Binyamin, it's a terrible thing. And, you know, like Yaakov is going to die. Well, obviously Yaakov is alive. So what kind of question is Yosef asking? Now, there are commentaries. My father has spoken about this in years past that want to say that it's kind of a sarcastic and sardonic question. Oh, now you care about our father. What about when you sold me? Huh? What about when you sold me? You obviously didn't care about that. And therefore, it's a form of Yosef actually chastising in a mean way the sale that the brothers did to him in that they caused tremendous anguish to their father. Now, you could say that that's what Yosef means. The problem is that everything else from this point forward, we find Yosef to be unbelievably conciliatory, right? He says, don't worry about anything. Don't think twice about what you did. Hashem sent me in front of you in order to save you. He literally comforts them, the Torah says, and he speaks to their hearts. So you want to say he had a, a, a temporary lapse of, of anger and say, oh, like, you know, you care so much about your father. You know, what about when you sold me? And then immediately that's followed by how much he cares about them and he kisses them and he speaks to them kindly and he gives them gifts. It doesn't make sense in, I think, the simple reading of the sentences to say that Yosef is initially lashing out at them and then suddenly turning around and trying to be, you know, all lovey-dovey with them. Another question that I think we have to ask ourselves is that now that Yosef is, in fact, revealing himself to the brothers, he then follows that with, now hurry down, go quickly, tell my father that you got to come down, you got to come down to Egypt, come down to Yosef. I mean, you know, I, I'm not saying that it was so easy for Yosef to travel, but you would think it's at least a conversation. You know, hey, can, you know, can Yaakov come down? It's a little hard for me. I, I don't know if any of you have gone through this on the dating front, but, you know, who travels to see who? You know, it's, it should at least be a conversation, right? Now, I know that Yaakov is desperate to see Yosef, but you would think, A, Yosef has an obligation called keep it on the aim. Right? For all of us that are bothered with the question, what's Yosef been doing all these years, not even sending a memo or a message, 
to Yaakov that he's alive, now that he's finally opened up and the brothers know that he's alive, you would think Yosef said, okay, guys, let's go. I'm going with you. I'm going up to I'm going up to Eretz Yisrael to visit Abba. But instead, not only does Yosef say, hurry up and tell my father to come down immediately, he says, and move everything, lock, stock, and barrel, bring everything down. And by the way, anything that you don't want to take with you, you don't have to take because we got everything here in Egypt. Okay? We have Publix, we have Walmart, we have Instacart, you know, we got everything here. Don't, don't take anything. You don't have to worry about anything. Why is that a fait accompli? Why is this the obvious next logical thing that should happen in this truly epic story that's full of riddles and, and hurdles for us to understand? Uh, but it just seems like such a, a real lack of fluidity in terms of a logical sequence that suddenly everybody has to come down to Egypt. So I'd like to begin by pointing out what I think is a, a really important, sensitive reading that is happening throughout these stories. There are times when the way that Yaakov is referenced is as our father, and there are other times when Yaakov is referenced as my father. Now, a very notable one before we talk about the main one, is that when Yehuda is making his, his big speech in front of Yosef, he says, when, I went, when, when we went up to your servant, my father, and then he says, and our father said, and then he says, my father, and so there's a lot of back and forth when it's my father, when it's our father. And I think there's a lot to be learned from all of them, but there's you know too much to go into now. But for our purposes, let's just look uh, at the last one before Yosef can no longer contain or restrain himself. He says, because how can I go up to my father and the youth, meaning Binyamin is not with me? And what? will happen, I can't look at the evil that will happen to my father. This is Yehuda saying, my father. Then Yosef can't contain himself, and then Yosef cries, and everybody hears that he's crying. He tells everyone, um, you know, to get out. And then Yosef to his brother says, I am Yosef. Is my father alive? Well, if Yosef is asking the question, about is Yaakov really alive, he should say, is our father alive? Now, we, of course, ask all the time they've been talking about father, why do we even ask that question? And then if you want to learn the other way, that he's being sarcastic, he shouldn't just be saying my father, although you could make an argument that he's trying to say the father that cares about me. But I would like to suggest a different approach, and that is that Yosef has a unique relationship with his father. And in fact, all children are able and should have a unique relationship with their father. So as much as a father is a father of many, a father also has to be the father of one, meaning each child has to have a unique, important, developmental relationship with the father. And therefore, Yehuda in particular, I'm going to suggest, when he says, how can I go up to my father? He means, how can I go up to the father who trusted me, 
who I took responsibility and guaranteed the return of Binyamin, which is something only Yehuda has in terms of a relationship with Yaakov, that relationship of trust and responsibility, that Yaakov was so reticent to give over Binyamin to the brothers. But when Yehuda said, I guarantee, he gave him over, that's a forging of a unique bond and relationship that allows Yaakov to make choices based on his special relationship with Yehuda. So Yehuda says, how can I go up to my father and face him? To which Yosef says, I also had a unique relationship with my father. And what I want to know is the father that cared for me, me in particular, is he still vibrant? Is he still active? Or more to the point, does he still have the vision of a future that includes me together with all of you? Because if we go back to the very beginning of the story and we look at the dreams, when Yaakov says to Yosef in front of the brothers, hey, are we going to come down? Are we going to bow down to you? Me, your brothers, me, your mother, and your brothers, and bow to you to the ground. He did it, Rashi says very explicitly, so that he could remove some of the hatred that Yosef is bringing upon him. Because Yosef is causing the brothers to hate him by pronouncing these dreams and then doing it in a public audience style with the brothers and the father. And then the Torah says, the Aviv Shamar is Hadavar. After Yaakov rebukes Yosef for saying these dreams, the Torah says, and his father, meaning Yaakov, Yosef's father, was guarding the matter, says Rashi, waiting expectantly for the time that will come that these dreams will come true. That means that Yaakov has an independent relationship with Yosef that says that the dreams will come true. And Yaakov, the father, the one who's developing Yosef, has in mind that these dreams should happen because he understands that part of his own job, part of Yaakov's own job, is to make sure that the dreams come true. That's his relationship with Yosef. And so therefore, the Aviv and Yosef's father was guarding the matter that these dreams should come true, which means that Yaakov was intending to do whatever he could to make sure that Yosef becomes the one in the dreams to whom everybody does bow down, despite the fact that he said, hey, do you think we're really going to all come and bow down to you? To which Yosef wants to know, not is Yaakov physically alive, now in this moment of truth, 22 years later, after the sale, after everything he went through, after he becomes viceroy of Egypt, Yosef wants to know, is that vision of Yaakov still alive, that I, Yosef, am the one that is destined to be the leader as pretend as portended predicted by these dreams and that's why he's saying is my father alive and here's what's really important for us because in order for yosef to be that leader he does need his father to back him you know all great leaders need their backers yosef does need yaakov and his backing in order for him to take the rightful role. And that is what Yaakov tried to do at the beginning. We all know it as the coat of many colors, right? The father made for him that coat to install him in a specific position vis-a-vis -vis the brothers, but it backfired. Yosef wasn't ready. The brothers weren't ready. A lot of things happened that made it that it didn't work. But now, 22 years later, Yosef is asking, 
is dad still ready to install Yosef as the leader that needs to be? And that's why he needs to see Yaakov immediately. So now let's do just a little step back and present what has to be, in my opinion, the most basic introduction to the entire storyline if we're going to have any understanding of it at all. Most of us have a tendency to look at the emotional components of this story very um, empathically. God forbid a child goes missing. God forbid it's for so long. We don't understand how the brothers could keep it a secret for so long. We don't understand why they don't go look for Yosef earlier. And we get very caught up in how could the brothers be so bad? How could these kind of um, you know painful moments be happening even to Yaakov for such an extended period of time? And we think of everything that's going on in ways that we would think of a normal parent-child brother rivalry relationship. But I think that we can't understand any of the storyline if that's really the way that we look at the entire epic that, that the Torah is describing. Instead, we have to understand that the most fundamental aspect of all of everything that's happening is that what's at stake is the development of the Jewish people who is going to be the nation that Hashem has guaranteed to Avraham, to Yitzchak, and to Yaakov will flourish from them? What is going to be the construct of that nation? How is it all going to gel? And who is going to make sure that it works? Who's on the team? Who's off the team? And how does it actually get finally formed? And for that, we understand the pain of Yaakov is not simply that he doesn't have his son Yosef that he loves with him for 22 years. It's that because Yaakov knows that Yosef is an absolute critical component of the development of this nation, Yaakov simply cannot reconcile himself with the idea that Yosef is gone. Because in order for the brothers to be who they need to be, you need Yosef. That's Yaakov's vision of the future. And that's why Yaakov does initially give Yosef the coat of many colors. That's why, according to the rabbis, Yaakov teaches all of his wisdom to Yosef. That's why the Torah specifically highlights Yosef as the main offspring of Yaakov. Because Yaakov's whole job, from the time that he leaves his parents' home, running away from Asaph to build a family is to be the final piece that will found the nation that Hashem chose to be the future of these forefathers and the purpose of the world. And so therefore, everything that is at stake and the drama that happens around all of everything in this story is specifically revolving around the idea of what will happen with this nation, how does it become formed, who makes it happen, and how does it work? And what we learn from Parshas Vayigash is that the unique relationship that Yaakov has with Yosef is a critical component for the Jews to function as a nation. And there's really no other way to explain why everybody needs to move down to Egypt. Sure, you can say they knew it was a prophecy that they would be in exile in Egypt. You could say that, but it doesn't say that anywhere. 
literally does not say that in the psukim, and to my knowledge, it's not even in the midrashim. I think there are commentaries that like to posit that idea, but we don't find that they're having in mind to go down because of the exile that Hashem said is going to happen to uh, to Avram Avinu. Not to mention the fact that the hard work doesn't start for many many decades, eighty years, one hundred and thirty years. It doesn't. It takes a long time for for that promise to really take shape in Egypt as opposed to whatever happened when uh, Yitzchak was born. So my point is that the simple storyline is that we have a promise from Hashem that the children from Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov are going to become this incredible nation. And we have here Yaakov as the father concerning himself with how does it all unfold. That's the basis of the story. And so therefore, when the brothers come down to Yosef and Yosef sees them and he recognizes them and they don't recognize him and he recalls the dream, Yosef knows that the mission here is to get the nation organized. That's the mission. And therefore, when it's now time to reveal himself to his brothers, what he says is the most, the first thing that he says other than I am Yosef is the vision of this nation still alive. Is it still the case that Yaakov feels for me that I should be the future? And the truth is, yes. That's why he was inconsolable for 22 years. The truth is, is that even though Yaakov is obviously depressed, as the Torah uh, highlights in a few different places, in Parsha Vayeshev, that he's not able to be comforted. In this week's Parsha, after he hears that Yosef is alive, his spirit becomes revived. Yaakov is depressed. But that's because he's pining for a people that involve Yosef, meaning for a descendancy that will be a nation that is the Jewish nation that will be built on Yosef and everything that Yosef does for the brothers. And so therefore, Yosef says, look, that's the most important thing. The only way to get that to happen is for everybody to move down. And Yaakov 100% agrees. And by the way, one of the places that you see very clearly that this is not just an emotional issue for Yaakov, it's a much more existential issue about what is the future of his, of his descendancy and the nationhood is because when he finally does accept that Yosef is alive, you know what he says? He says, I better go see him before I die. Why is he dying all of a sudden? He should be, you know, I, I'm going to go see him and this is going to be great and we're going to have time together. It's because as long as Yosef is alive, he feels comfortable that his mission will happen as long as, again, he supports Yosef's leadership and he makes it clear to the brothers that Yosef is a critical cog. He's saying, okay, then I can die. Literally. And when he sees Yosef, he says, okay, now I can die. I mean, that's literally over and over. He's saying, okay, now I can die. You would think somebody who's been pining for the son that he loves for 22 years, everything should be about the fact that he wants to spend time with him. Now it's truth, or Hashem, he lives another 17 years and he does have time with Yosef and that's wonderful. But you see that his issue, Yaakov Avinu's issue is not, oh, it's so terrible, woe is me, I miss my son. It's not that at all. It's only about what is going to be the future destiny of this people. Now, one of the real main messages that we learn from all this is the critical aspect 
of the development of the next generation is a hundred dependent, a hundred percent dependent on the relationship of the children with the father, and specifically the unique relationship that each child has with the father. I, I think that that is so huge. You know, we have twelve tribes. Each one of them are phenomenal people. Each one of them do have a unique relationship with Yaakov. And because of that, they are able to build a society for themselves within the depraved culture of Egypt that not only survives, but tremendously thrives. And for 80 years, as long as Yosef is alive, they are becoming an incredible people with tremendous values not subsumed into Egyptian culture, but they are maintaining their identity and they are thriving. Uh, the last sentence in the parsha is one of the most positive sentences in the Torah uh, as pertains to the Jewish people. It says, the Jewish people dwelled in Egypt or Israel dwelled in Egypt. This is chapter 47, sentence 27. In the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, they took hold in it and they were fruitful and multiplied very much. That's the last sentence in our Parsha, because that's telling you that what did happen is that when they came down and Yosef cared for them through the family and Yosef set them up and he was extremely careful in how he set them up, where he put them in terms of real estate, what he presented to Paro about his brothers, about being shepherds and giving them a certain autonomy within Egyptian society with the fact that he was able to somehow have Egypt fully accept his brothers coming down and whatever you know privileges they had Yosef did a tremendous job in setting up a culture that worked for them and as we know Yehuda was sent also in front of Yaakov to make sure that things worked out well in Egypt uh, you know, we've talked about that in years past, more about that another time. But the bottom line is, is that the power of Yosef was to create a functioning culture and society for the Jewish nation so that it would thrive even in Eretz Mitzrayim, meaning not in Eretz Yisrael, which would have been the more natural choice. But the point that the Torah is telling us is that the reason that it happened is because of the unique qualities of Yosef and the fact that Yaakov built this tremendous, these tremendous relationships with his children and specifically his unique relationship with Yosef that allowed the brothers to accept the truth of Yosef's critical role in their flourishing. And that happens because Yaakov moves with the brothers to Mitzrayim. They live together, they work together, and they develop cultural living together. So I think that if we want to apply all of this to today, what's most important is the parent-child relationship and the way that the parents and the children work together to build the future. You know, it's not about the parents designing the future. It's not about the children trailblazing and making the future. It's about the partnership between the parents and the children. That is what is becoming abundantly clear in this story. And even in the, like the simple level, you know, that I think is very interesting, when Yosef recognizes the brothers and they don't recognize him, so they don't know it's Yosef, and he accuses them of being spies, the proof 
that they're not spies is because they're the children of one man and they left the brother at home and there's another brother that they're missing. It's bizarre. That's the answer. Hey, no, we're not spies because we're all the, the children of one man and there's one youngest brother staying at home and one brother that we don't know what's happening. to. That's what the sentence is saying. What does that have to do with not being spies? But you know what? The more I thought about this, the more I realized so much of what's happening in the world today comes down to one very simple thing. Are we selfish and only thinking about what we want, how to get what we want either within our society or to rape a different society and to you know, manipulate others to get what we want, which is what spying and capturing other lands is all about? Or are we people that are functioning together as a family, simply trying to build our own, you know, family and dynasty. And that's what they're saying. We're not spies. Yeah, we look like powerful, influential people, but our whole interest is what's happening at home. Our whole interest is that we're here to get food. We're going back home. Well, you know, we, we have no choice but to get food from here, unfortunately, but we're getting it so that we can build our thing called our family and the future of our children. And we're working together with our father on that. And by the way, it's astonishing when you think about all the things that the brothers are doing with their father all the years. They're shepherding their father's sheep when they're married and have children of their own. What is that all about? The answer is that they made a very determined decision to work together, to forge a nation together. And ultimately, that requires Yosef. And that's what happens in our parsha. So therefore, we're explaining how Oda Vichai to mean is the vision of Yosef being a critical component of the organizing of this nation still alive. And ultimately, the answer is yes. And therefore, when Yosef sends all the things for his father and says, come down, everybody comes down. Everybody knows that the end game of all of this is that Yosef is going to be the one to organize them into the nation that they need to become. And that's dependent on the father-son relationship. Now, I say father-son, it's also father-daughter. And because of this, by the way, I'm just going to talk about this just for two minutes because I want to get to questions and comments. We have an unbelievable listing in our parsha of the descendants of Yaakov. And there's so much discussion about who is mentioned, who is left out, if Yaakov had other daughters, if uh, if the Shvatim had other wives, Yocheved, according to one opinion, even though she's not mentioned, she's part of the number 70. To me, another astonishing thing is that Er and Onan are mentioned, even though they had died. Yehuda's two earliest sons, they're mentioned over here. They're not counted, but they're mentioned. Seemingly, there's no reason for them to be mentioned. But my suggestion, and I'm saying it quickly because I want to get, you know, I want to finish. But, you know, hopefully you can take this and, and think about it on your own. We're mentioning all the people that are the descendants of Yaakov, specifically the descendants of Yaakov. If they're not a descendant of Yaakov, they're not mentioned unless they are the wives of Yaakov. And we're mentioning all the ones that had a major impact on the development of these people. So even Aaron Onan, for example, the fact that they did what they did and Yehuda then stepped in and ended up being the husband of Tamar and producing the dynasty that will be the Mashiach had a major impact on this nation. And so therefore, the listing is basically a way of describing what I'm trying to say. The future is built with the father and the children intentionally building together. That's how futures are built. That's what people today like to call legacy. But let's ask ourselves, 
How often does it happen that parents and children, especially a multiple of siblings, are aligned, coordinate with each other to build together with their ancestors the future? If we do that, we are the Jewish people. If we don't do that, we are not the Jewish people. That's, I think, at the heart of, of our parsha and what we need to understand today. So, you know, all of us want to know what we can do today. Get aligned with your children. Give them a vision for the future. Empower them to that future. Daven and hope that they want to build that future with you and be available to do that building with them. Whether it's their communities or their schools or together you're doing a community or your school or, you know, your way of thinking but you have to build the future together with your children. Too often in life, especially in these last many decades, parents become very self-centered, very much about retirement. You know, now it's me time. I took care of you guys for 18 years or 20 years or whatever the number is. Now I get to do what I wanna do. Huge mistake. The relationships with the children need to be ongoing. Not only that you have a relationship, but that you're building a future together with them. And a real father will move to wherever the children are if that's what's necessary. Questions or comments? No. Yes, Joseph. That's a wonderful, wonderful lesson. I wish I would have learned this before I became a father. <laughs> But uh, I take I take solace that uh, even Jacob was not uh, a perfect father. He made mistakes too. So um, I think you define a very a very very fine line between having a special relationship with each child, but at the same time not to make each other jealous or not feeling one superior to the other. So each one to have his own uniqueness and not to compare with each other, to have their own identity. And I think this is a big challenge. It's a huge challenge. So I'll share with you what my father has always taught us. And, um, and it's a tremendous answer. So there's a few different ways to like approach this, but I think a good way to understand it is that, first of all, philosophically as parents, we don't give everybody the same. We give everybody what we think each one needs based on who they are. Now, mm. if you can give the same, great, That's, uh, ideal. But sometimes you can't, right? How often is it in life that one child needs a lot of financial assistance and a different child doesn't need as much? Or other kinds of time assistance, right? There's all attention assistance, right? There's, there's so much that can be different between different children so that's point number one. Point number two is that a much deeper way to make this palatable is to talk about a brotherhood. In other words, it's a parent's responsibility to provide that the children are a team. So on a team, everybody on the team gives to what the other team member needs when they need it right? Any team. This one is injured. Someone else has to step in and do. But they don't get cut from the team because they're injured. Right? So therefore, the feeling and the and not only the feeling, but the concept that needs to be conveyed, but it's both the feeling and the concept, is that we are doing what's good for the brotherhood, what's good for the children. 
And all brothers would re really want to step into that. And so therefore, the uneven distribution of wealth is not only acceptable, it's really what good brothers want because they care about their brother. Wonderful. Thank you. Anybody else with a question or comment today? Well, uh, Rabbi, just just on on your on your comment of caring about one's brother. Yes. It, it, just just as you were speaking, it, it, the fact that Yosef didn't try to reach out to Yaakov all those years and all the problems surrounding it, could it be that he was trying to correct a mistake he made before when he had an account that he could give about his brothers? And he maybe he didn't do it the right way. And now he's grown as a leader and within the family. And he can finally talk to his father and acknowledge that he's there because he's essentially healed the family and brought it together on a united mission. And had he done anything like that before, it wouldn't have served that purpose. So I agree with you definitely in general. Um, and even your points, they're all very good. I, I guess I just, in my mind, I construct it a little differently. To me, the reason that the brothers, and this is a, a huge piece, the brothers never go look for Yosef, except when there's a famine, according to the rabbis, they did. Okay. But without that, they didn't, they never go look for him, right? So what's the reason for that? And my understanding is because in order for Yosef to be found, it's not enough for his physical body to be found he would have to be reintegrated into the brotherhood. And in the brother's mind, even after they realized that they did something wrong, Yosef would never willingly reintegrate to a brotherhood. Who would? Right? Most people would have been planning revenge for the last 22 years. Right? Not planning, oh, I can't, how, how can we get together and all get, get along again? Right? So the brothers literally can't believe that about Yosef, which is part of what makes his revel revealed identity so hard for them to take. Because Yosef is not only the king that they thought he never would be, maybe, but he's also presenting as, I'm with you. I'm one of you. And, and, and that's just like unbelievable and so hard for them to, to understand almost because they always assume the opposite. And so therefore he doesn't try because they at the very least have to have an openness to him, um, you know, somehow coming back. So I would say in a certain way, he is waiting for them to be open to taking him back and not to have just, you know, cut him out. Rebbe Chiel, you're raising your hand, I can't see. I don't know. Uh, you're on mute, Rebbe Chiel, if you're talking to us. Um, it made me start thinking uh, it's really for next week when they suspect that he wants to take revenge. But in reality, the question begins now, because the Torah, as you pointed out, the Torah certain gives a certain appearance that they're befuddled by the fact, like you just said, that they never dreamed he'd be a king and they can't believe he wants to reintegrate with them. And the Torah gives you this kind of image that, you know, that they are accepting that because Yosef brings the brothers, everything. And then all of a sudden we get popped up next week that they really don't believe that that's possible. And so why does the Torah gives you this appearance 
that they were believing, then, you know, this parsha seems that everything's honky-dory. And then next week, you know, we're flabbergasted by this bubble mice that they make up because they're so scared to death. Yeah, so we should talk about it a lot more next week, and God willing, I'll work on it more. But obviously the difference between this week and next week is before, you know, ADY, right, or BDY, before the death of Yaakov or after the death of Yaakov, right? Okay. Um, I get, yeah, that, I mean, that would be the real, that is the answer. There must yeah. be a, a some kind of transformative transition so, between the so two. So one thing that's really possible is that, you know, I pointed out something um, last week, which is still astonishing to me, that when Yosef first puts them in jail, all of them, you know, before sending them back and just keeping one, when he first puts all of them in jail, three days go by and they have no remorse. They express, express no remorse, no worry about being caught for what they did. But as soon as Yosef says, okay, now all of you go back and one of you stay here, then they start expressing, oh, no, I guess what we did in the past is now catching up with us. Why is that? And the reason is because as long as they're in jail and they don't know that they're going to have to go face Yaakov, they're still OK. But now that they're going to actually have to go face Yaakov again and kind of admit something is majorly wrong here, because, again, we're dealing with a missing brother. Now they're terrified because now they have to face Yaakov. So I'm saying projection would tell me that they believe that Yosef's reconciliation is because he's being held in check. He's being held in check by Yaakov, not unlike Esau being held in check by Yitzchak. So they're willing to go along. What's that? It has to be like you're saying. It's just, you realize how unbelievable that is. It's hard. But yeah, what we have to work on it more. Yeah, but that's what it seems. They think that's how, yeah. I mean, there's nothing what to talk about. You're absolutely right. The question, what's going through their minds? Yeah. yeah I, Hi, I you think just, yeah, I just want to say what Robert Needham said. The reason is when, till then, he never passed by, they, they passed by the pit. The Medjur says, he passed by the pit. He said something. It's, the Medjur says he said the bracha shall, uh, the bracha that you have to say when this happened. But he never told his brothers. So when they saw that, that's when they started getting shivering. That was the first part of the. Robert, that's why they didn't yeah. in their mind. So that's the first thing. The second part of it is the end of the day is we see that he, he never forgave them because it was a Sarigimalchis. And the story that I I I know I I I just don't go away. I heard the story with Robert Robert Moshe Feinstein. There was once a very big argument between two partners, and he, they said whatever Moshe Feinstein will say, they will listen. And the end of the thing, he he told them how to, to straighten out everything. Then he said, please apologize to each other. And said, why? We, we're partners. We love each other. He said, I'm asking you to apologize. And they both apologized. When they left, the person that was sitting with Ramosha that was there for Shemesh asked him, what is this? He said, the brothers never, he told them, I, God sent me to be your your partner and your pranasa and everything. He never forgave them. And that's why you have to get forgiving. That's the sole storyline that it looks like that's what really happened. You're making you're making an assumption that they didn't forgive them. This is the I think Not me. Moshe Feinstein said that because they are sorry, Gamalchis. Benu Bechaya says it as well. But if Smukrach, according to the Minchas Minuch, according to the Chinuch, and according to so, there's definitely ain't Mechila Gedolim Mizu. If I say you never did anything to me wrong, 
And that's well, that's, that, that, that the, the biggest proof is that, that if there wouldn't have been the Asharic Malchus. So you don't know that from the Chumash. You're claiming later on there's Asharic Malchus. That says it's not. That's not me saying it. Okay. The Rishonim are saying that. I recommend that the, yeah, the two of you maybe talk. Off right, right. Off. Sorry, yeah. sorry. No, 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 no. no, no. I, just, I just wanted to say I, that when Yosef says Uvi, it doesn't say my father. It doesn't mean my father. Ovi means the f- the father that you have just mentioned. That's where I always learned it. He tells he you said your father. So that father, when you sold me, did you really care about that father? He's telling this to Yehuda. Which father did you just said? Is Chai? You didn't really care when you sold me. That's where <laughs> I always learned it. Yeah, yeah. Again, Ovi is not it's not my father. That's why I felt. Obi means the father you just mentioned told me now, is that father when you told me you really cared about, you didn't care. Why all of a sudden were you caring about so much? Yeah, so I I mentioned that chat. The problem I have with that. I know. But Obi doesn't mean my father, Yasser's father. I still think it means that. But okay, even even if you're right, even if it doesn't mean that, it means the father that Yehuda's talking about, right? But that doesn't match the rest of what he does. Yeah, that, that's that's a separate question. Let's first start with it. Oid Uvi Chai says that he, 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 they just told him a half an hour he's alive. So he's saying that father you just mentioned me is alive. Did you really care about him? You didn't care about me when you sold me. If you read, he doesn't say, why are you saying Oid Uvi Chai? We just, you don't have to say that. He said the right. father, that's what it sounds like. The second part of it is, he, no, it, at that point, he, it doesn't sound like Said, oh, maybe you're being machria. You're taking your shot that you know as a kid and forcing it into the post. I didn't further, further, further. I didn't say this shot. My Rebbe said that who, who, who felt because of the Madras, excuse me, Rabbi Niederman, you're not letting me speak. The, the Madras says, uh, when you come up to the other world, this is the way they're going to judge you. They're going to judge you if you were always stingy and you're stingy when you're giving tzedak, it's not a problem. The same thing, the brothers, why they were so ashamed. Because Yosef told them directly, you don't care about your father because when you sold me, the biggest proof, that's my rabbi told me, in Chayde, I didn't make the story. He said, the father that you say you care about, that father you didn't care about when you sold me. So it's not me. And that's what the message says. When you come to the other world, I tell you, you always cared about that, you didn't. So I'm sorry. Okay. I'm not gonna let you. I, I do think that there's another way to understand that Medrash, by the way. Even the way I'm saying it, it's because when the truth becomes held up in front of a person in a very uncomfortable way, even if Yosef doesn't mean it to say it as a tochecha, it still is a rebuke. He did he did tell it, he did tell it as a rebuke. And then he felt he told him of the rebuke, and then he went straight to be friendly. Because okay. he felt it's over. I'm saying even if you don't learn. That he said it as a rebuke, it would still oh. be a rebuke. That's all I'm saying. That, that's still be, a, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I hear you saying. Okay, let's not, I don't want to keep it. Okay, the, all good, all good. Chavez and easy fast, everybody. Thank you, you too. Anybody else for today? All right. Well, it's a pleasure to see you all, Dr. Rothman, Eric, Alan, Sharif. Abichil, I see Daphna, Aaron Yehuda, uh, Ari Marinelli, Sabi, Jacob. So many. Uh, there are more than I than I can go through. Everybody, it's great to be with all of you. 
an easy and meaningful Bezos Hashem, this should be the last Asara B'Tere's fast that any of us need to fast. By the way, next year, it's again on Friday. Wow. Okay, well, it will be fired again. It's very interesting. Very well, rarely it happens like that. First. Akiva, oh, man. Akiva, if you have a few minutes, could you yes. give me a Okay. Good job, everyone. Shalom, everyone. Shabbos.